developmental optometrist, award-winning author, and international speaker, Dr. Lynn Hellerstein holds powerful and inspiring conversations with her guests on Vision Beyond Sight in areas of healthcare, wellness, education, sports, and psychology. They share their inspirational stories of healing and life transformation through their vision expansion. Billions of people have vision problems, and vision is more than 2020. Vision Beyond Sight will help you see with clarity and gain courage and confidence. Your vision does not define you. You define your vision. With Dr. Lin's new way to look at your life through a new lens, you will be ready to meet yourself and receive visualizations for miracles to come. Welcome to Vision Beyond Sight. This is Dr. Lynn, and welcome to Vision Beyond Sight. Today, visiting with us is my friend and colleague, Dr. Barry Tannen. I've known Barry for probably 30, 40 years through optometry. Today, we're going to talk about vision, motion sensitivity, and specific photophobia. And he will be explaining all those terms in just a minute. But we're going to talk about common but overlooked consequences of concussion traumatic brain injury. So before we get started, I just want to share a little bit about uh, Barry's very impressive and adventurous life. He's been an optometric physician for more than 30 years at eye care professionals. Uh, he has, his clinical research and interests are in visual deficits related to concussion, acquired brain injury, strabismus, amblyopia, and learning-related problems. Barry also is a program supervisor for a private-based residency in vision therapy and rehabilitation. He's received so many awards, we could spend the entire uh, podcast talking about his achievements and and his awards, but he's won uh, um, significant writing awards, um, research awards. He's a fellow of the Academy of Optometry and COVD, College of Optometry and Vision Development. He's past president of that organization, as well as a clinical professor emeritus at SUNY State College of Optometry in New York. He lectures, he co-authors journal uh, journal articles, and he's truly one of my mentors and doctors, and I'm so grateful to have him in my life. So, Dr. Barry Tannen, welcome to Vision Beyond Sight. Thank you so much, Lynn. That was a lovely introduction, and um I really appreciate it, and I consider you one of my mentors, so I guess it's uh, mutual. Well, thank you. And one of the most important facts that I forgot to mention is that he's in practice with his son, Dr. Noah Tannen, which many of you probably already heard him twice on this pad- podcast, and he's just, he's one of these young go-getters, and I can see him as being of the future in his field and following in your footsteps as well. So let's jump right in here, uh, Barry, and and explain some of the t- uh, terms in this title: um, vision, most motion sensitivity, and photophobia. Let's start with those. Yeah, you know, it's, I think it's important to to discuss these things because what what I see in practice, and I imagine you do as well, is that a lot of patients who've had concussions or other forms of traumatic brain injury have these conditions and they get often overlooked by many of their other doctors and providers. So I guess 
sort of the best way to describe visual motion sensitivity. It used to be called visual vertigo, but I don't think that's really an accurate term anymore. But I guess the best way of saying it is that it's a condition that is characterized by dizziness, a feeling of disequilibrium, could be headaches or eye strain, but mostly it's provoked when people are in busy visual environments. So for example, supermarkets or malls. It could also be triggered by things moving in the periphery. Like if you're in a car, not so much the motion of the car, but the visual motion that's going around you, the optic flow, as they call it, that's around you. It could be provoked by looking at a computer screen. So if you think about these type of things, these occur every day in people's lives. And when those symptoms happen and people just say, you know, I just don't feel good when I see this or when I'm experiencing it. Sometimes they don't even know. They just don't feel well and they, they know they're not feeling well, but they're not even sure what's causing it. Um, but when we start to really ask questions, we find that this visual motion sensitivity is sort of at the root cause of it. And sometimes their source and complaint is just utter fatigue. They are Correct. so tired, either being yep. upright, staying focused. They just can't believe the level of fatigue they have. That's a great point. Yeah, that, that's another point of it also. So, yeah, it, it, it ends up affecting so many different realms that um, I feel like it could be overlooked because it's sometimes, you know, hard to put your finger on, like what's going on here. And then the other condition, this um, specific photophobia or specific photosensitivity, you know, everybody is somewhat sensitive if they're in bright sunlight, right? And people who have lighter colored eyes tend to be more sensitive in bright sunlight than others. And, you know, we all have that to some degree and some people have it more than others. That's not what we're talking about here. The specific part of it is it's lighting that's specific, like fluorescent lights or harsh indoor lights or the flicker from computer screens or scrolling again. So there's these specific lighting conditions that can cause these same, these same symptoms, but tremendous symptoms. And again, people are saying, what's going on? Why am I getting this now? I never noticed this before. So it's different than just our general light sensitivity that a lot of people have. That's Is that right. correct? That's, yeah. Yeah, that's why I want to differentiate those two. Yeah, if I could also take you back to the uh, visual motion sensitivity too, how is that different than, or is it different from motion sickness? Yeah, you know, I think it is. Because when we think about motion sickness, right, or not motion sickness or motion sensitivity or that sort of thing, that's typically different in that it causes the same symptoms now, dizziness, nausea, can even be vomiting, but it's specifically when you are in motion, like in a car or on a train or an airplane or a boat, or the best way to think of it is in a, an amusement park ride. And what happens in those situations is, as we know, the inner ear is responsible for our balance, and it's also responsible for reconciling that sort of motion. And so that's a different issue, although it's very related to visual motion sensitivity, and people could have both, by the way, but 
it's specific. The visual motion is you don't have to be moving at all, but the, the things that are moving around you, the vision, things that are moving around you, whether that just be people or uh, movement or lights or, you know, uh, supermarkets that have tall aisles and lots of things going on, just visually busy environments, as opposed to your moving. That's, I guess, the best way of differentiating the two. Yeah, that's great. And and I know you see this, too, and you mentioned the scrolling of computers. So so often we see patients that really want to get back to work and that right. movement and scrolling of a computer makes them so sick and uncomfortable. Um, and people will ex- complain about it. And, you know, often docs just kind of shake their head and kind of like, oh, cut down the computer use and don't even think about what's going on there, much less if there's any treatment available for that. Yeah, easier said than done in, in this world, right? Right. Um, also with that, I think you brought up an interesting point, an important point, is that you know some doctors will, will shake their heads, but others will say, oh, you know, this is psychosomatic. This is all in your head. Well, of course, it's all in your head, but right. not, not made up in their head or not psychosomatic or not anxiety. Yes, these things can cause a lot of anxiety if you're in all of these conditions and they cause these severe symptoms. But unfortunately, um, sometimes doctors, if they don't understand something or if they're not up on it, then they're down on it, you know, the old saying. And that's a, a, an unfortunate thing because these patients are already suffering. And the last thing they need is to have someone who is basically discounting their symptoms or telling them that they're not real. Or even worse, I've seen it where they're saying, you're just trying to get out of going back to work which is a horrible thing to say to somebody who is really suffering with these symptoms and would love to resume their life, but they can't. Yeah, that's so true, Barry. And again, I'm sure you've had patients where just you listening without judgment of their symptoms, they start crying because no nobody has even listened to them. Uh, and often they've been in a situation where they're called malingers or like you said, you know, avoiding work. Uh, return and and they're very real symptoms and we're going to talk in a few minutes how to evaluate but I mean they're documented you can measure a lot of these symptoms now and so we're going to get into that Uh, before we get into actually you know the testing and how we diagnose these conditions talk about you know which professionals really diagnose and treat visual motion sensitivity and specific photosensitivity because people are going all over you know in the hospital settings the rehab settings the private docs and i often you know sometimes we're the last resort and they've seen so many doctors about this so so talk about you know what's what's going on who really needs to see these kinds of symptoms yeah and you know it's it's um you know, it's ironic you mentioned that. We, we often refer, I talk to our residents about it, we're like the clinic of last resort. Yeah. Like tried everything else. And now, all right, that's, we'll give them a try. That's so and, true. Uh, it's a shame, but it is true. So I think that, you know, the, the short answer is that um, optometrists or neuro-optometric rehabilitative optometrists, those optometrists who actually work with the consequences of brain injury and concussion should be the ones that diagnose this because that's what we do. We understand these conditions. So that would be the short answer. But what ends up happening, of course, is that they end up seeing lots of different doctors. So um, I think that it's important for neurologists, 
and physiatrists and physical therapists all have a, a good understanding of the visual motion sensitivity and the interplay that it has with things like vertigo and the more classic motion sickness. It would be very helpful, and, and of course many of them can and do, differentiate those two, and then they can make a better referral for treatment or you know, what the next steps would be. So I'd say all of those professionals and others are involved with the diagnosis of these conditions. Yeah, and um, especially in the world of rehab, your physical therapists and ENTs are often sent these patients because it yeah. looks like uh, a vestibular problem. If you want to differentiate or, right. uh, you yeah. know, between the vestibular issues versus the visual motion sensitivity issues, how do you yeah, that's differentiate a great that? Point. I forgot about the uh, ear, nose, and throat doctors. They're, they're certainly very important in this, especially the, the neurologists who specifically work with uh, damage to the inner ear and vestibular system. So, you know, I guess the best way of, again, trying to differentiate, well, first of all, I think there's a very important point to be made between true vertigo and dizziness or disequilibrium, because they could easily be confused. But I think the best way of saying it, and if you ask a patient, they usually could tell you pretty clearly one from the other. Vertigo is when you actually have the feeling that the world is is spinning around you. So there is actually, you know, it's a it's a horrible, horrible feeling. Um, I, I haven't ever experienced it myself, but just judging from my patient's response, it seems like one of the worst things that can happen. Um, and so that's true vertigo, and that's like the classic um, symptom of vestibular dysfunction. And and there are others, but one of them is that, and then another one is is the problem that the patient is having more pronounced when they're moving their head and or body? In other words, if they say, I turn suddenly and I feel really lightheaded and dizzy, or I turn my head the other way, that doesn't mean for sure that it's more vestibular, but it certainly can be. So, you know, when there's motion involved, body motion, head motion, um, even walking sometimes, and that's what provokes the symptoms, that's a good um, indicator that at least there's a, a, a strong vestibular or balance component. And if you would mention, because often people that have crystals in the ears, that's how they present. Um, yeah. Can you just speak about that just a little bit? Because that's an easy differentiation that it's like a magic success if they respond to a quick yeah. movement. Yeah. yeah. So the idea of the, the BPPV, um, right. you know, that when the, when the crystals move in the inner ear, um, it can cause tremendous symptoms of vertigo. And there are specific maneuvers, an Epley maneuver and diagnostic test, the Hallpike test. And these can be done both by um, neurologists, uh, physiatrists, and physical therapists, and they actually can do um, a relatively simple procedure that moves, helps the patient move their crystals from the out-of-place position to the in-place position, and almost magically, the symptoms reduce or even disappear. They even have 
um, online where you have these um, situations where you can do the Epley maneuver on yourself. I don't know that I would necessarily feel comfortable doing that or telling a patient to do that, but they actually do have that available where you can actually look it up and try to do it to yourself. I would feel much more comfortable with a professional doing it. But it's important to know that when you get that feeling, that spinning feeling, the vertical feeling, that should be evaluated. Because if it is that, if it is the, the movement of the crystals, um, it can be simply remedied, as, as you mentioned. Right. And I love when, not necessarily that's what they have, but if it is what they have, boy, they get instant relief if the maneuver works and, and you can it's move on and you know, go to the next step. So continue on your differentiating between the true mm-hmm. vertical and the dizziness disequilibrium. So, you know, we talked about head motion, body motion, um, movement in space where your body is moving or you're in a vehicle or uh, a train or a car that's moving fast. Those are all classic ways that your body or your inner ear has to kind of respond to. And therefore, um, if they do not, they'll get these symptoms of vertigo or disequilibrium. So many times the symptoms could be the same, but the thing that's critical is what provokes the symptoms. So for example, if you're in a a situation where, you know, walking doesn't cause it, but walking in a busy visual environment causes it like a mall or a supermarket. One of the earlier names for this condition was supermarket syndrome. Mm -hmm. And that's because the visually busy environments there's a lot that the brain has to reconcile with all this movement in the sides and periphery cause this dizziness or disequilibrium. Headaches, like you said, fatigue, these are all things that can occur in those visual environments. Typically, it's not the vertigo. It's not the actual feeling that the world is spinning around you. Now, again, it can be combined, but the visual disequilibrium or the ones that are caused by visually busy environments, or like you said, the scrolling or any sort of visually busy environment, or if you're in a car, but it's not the movement of the car, but it's the movement of the visual world around you, the optic flow. Those are all um, things that provoke this visual motion sensitivity. Right. And do you want to just mention about the impact? So many people are wearing glasses that are like no line bifocals and high tech computerized lenses that are beautiful, yet the distortion they may create causing some of the symptoms you're talking about. That's a great point, because um, almost invariably, the first thing when I have, you know, a patient who's let's say, presbyopic over age 40 or so, and they're wearing uh, bifocals or progressive lenses, the invisible, you know, multifocal lenses. These are wonderful, you know. People love them and they wear them. And let's say this patient has done great with them for years, but now they've suffered a traumatic brain injury or post-concussion syndrome. And all of a sudden, the distortion, everything that has occurred before your brain was able to handle. I think, you know, maybe we could talk about this now. One of the most important functions of the brain is that it filters things. So what I mean by that is we don't think about it, but our brain helps us pay attention to that, which is important. 
but there's tons of stuff going on around us, right? There's movement, there's noise, there's sounds, there's, you know, all sorts of things. And our brain's function is not only to pay attention to the things that are important, but to sort of put those other things in the background and not pay attention to them. That's probably at least as important as its ability to pay attention to things. So what happened in uh, post-concussion or traumatic brain injury is that it loses its ability. The brain loses its ability to filter things properly. So that's why, you know, without getting into the, the neurophysiology of this all, but that's why it becomes so difficult to reconcile all these visual motion and things that are going on in our visual periphery. One of those things is this um, adaptation or this peripheral kind of uh, distortion that occurs with some of these high-tech lenses or progressive lenses, as you were mentioning. So one of the first things that we do with these patients, and I'm sure you do the same thing, is, okay, for, from now until I tell you, you're out of progressives. And, you know, nobody's happy about that because now we're talking about multiple pair of glasses to kind of do the same function, but it's really critical to the recovery not to get sick every time they're moving or, you know, every time things are moving around them or they, when they look down. So, you know, one of the first steps that we do is often take them out of their progressives. Yes. And that's something that I discovered very early in my career and, um, found that got rid of the distortion, but then we ran into the problems if they needed, you know, lenses uh, for mid seeing or near that created new symptoms. So, so we can chat, we're going to take a break here, Barry, in just a few Mm -hmm. seconds. So we can chat about some of the creative ways uh, neurooptometric optometrists uh, can prescribe and really help folks uh, see better and function better. We'll be right back here. Dr. Lin will be right back after this. Discover the power of the seeing brain, the creator of your true vision. Dr. Lynn Hellerstein's number one bestseller book, Expand Your Vision, helps you see with clarity and gain courage and confidence. Remove roadblocks and visualize your new lens to see and experience your world. Get Expand Your Vision on Amazon or visit lynnhellerstein.com. Developmental optometrist, award-winning author, and international speaker, Dr. Lynn Hellerstein holds powerful and inspiring conversations with her guests on Vision Beyond Sight in areas of healthcare, wellness, education, sports, and psychology. They share their inspirational stories of healing and life transformation through their vision expansion. Vision Beyond Sight will help you find clarity in your functional vision and expand the power of your seeing brain to gain courage, confidence, and success in your life. Join Dr. Lynn each week for a new exciting episode, Vision Beyond Sight.
Can your child organize, really organize? Parents and teachers will have practical step-by-step strategies and templates to help get their children organized with Dr. Lynn Hellerstein's Organize It workbook. Increased organizational skills create success and confidence in school, sports, and life. Get Organize It on Amazon or visit lynnhellerstein.com. Welcome back to Vision Beyond Sight. Here's Dr. Lynn. Everyone, welcome back. We're with Dr. Barry Tannen, who is a neurooptometrist, truly a leader in our field, not only in optometry, but in the whole neurorehabilitation field. And we've been talking about um, visual motion sensitivity and specific photophobia. And what I'd like to move into now, Barry, is really talking about neurooptometric rehabilitation. You know, what specific kind of testing, what's different that we do to be able to really evaluate these patients patients with these symptoms? And then we'll talk about the rehab part. How can we help these patients function better? Sure. I, I think um, one of the things that uh, I'm excited about or have been excited about is some of the diagnostic tests that we've actually kind of come up with um, that help us with uh, these types of patients because there really weren't great tools. There are lots of tools for um, vestibular dysfunction and, and diagnosing that. But when it came to visual motion sensitivity or uh, specific photophobia, it, it was less, it was more about the symptoms and case history but I was looking for diagnostic tests. And one of the things I found a number of years ago is that uh, you know, patients in general, let's say children or even adults, you know, a fair amount of them have difficulty with coordinating their two eyes and looking at things at near. So we see this all the time with school-aged children. They have this convergence insufficiency. They, they have trouble focusing and tracking and, and looking at things that are close to them. So that's not um, specific for uh, for people who have traumatic brain injury, although it occurs quite commonly. But one of the things that I found that was very unique is that when their eyes are looking at something far away at a distant object, and let's assume they don't have anything like a strabismus, an eye turn, or amblyopia, or lazy eye. So they're looking at something far away. Typically, the visual skills that are involved with that are not that different from one person to another. They're commonly very similar. So what I found with these patients is that they had a tremendous deal of difficulty just keeping their eyes aligned and focused on something at a distance. That was different and unique. And so one of the tests that I came up with is a distance fusional facility test. In other words, um, it's a test where a very low amount of prism or the device that makes your eyes want to converge or relax, very low amounts, which normally you or I or the average patient would think, why are you even bother testing me? This is nothing. But with these patients, these traumatic brain injury, post-concussion patients, they had a tremendous deal of difficulty. Often they would turn double and they couldn't get it back to single. So I found that this was a very specific and different kind of a thing 
So that was what made me excited about it. And we did some research that confirmed that this test, this deficit, this visual deficit, looking at things at distance and using your two eyes together was somewhat unique to this population. So that and what power, yeah, what power prism were you using to check the facility? So we were using two base in and four base out. Yeah. So that's a small amount, right? Right. Most well, you people, know, when you go ahead, there. Well, I was going to say, this really reminds me when I did research in the 90s looking at mm -hmm. electrodiagnostic testing on mild brain injury patients. And we yes. found patients that had been over one year post trauma, still 70% of them that had symptoms had abnormal electrodiagnostic testing. But what we also found, and this is so interesting, Dr. W.C. Maples, one of our colleagues, helped with the stats. Mm -hmm. When we looked at the vergences, like convergence, mm -hmm. divergence, the, the vergences at distance were wacko. They were yeah. abnormal because actually in the instrument, the phoropter, where we do all our, a lot of our testing, it would be like 20, 30, 40. It would be much standard deviations, many standard deviations higher than it should be. And then the patient couldn't recover. It was always like a minus recovery. And we thought that was so odd and that stood out in our research as well. It's so interesting to hear that's what, what you yeah. also discovered. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I actually remember um, reading your papers um, at that time and, and later. And yeah, I, I, it was a little bit different than what we found, but the same function, the distance function, which is again, the one that we generally don't even think of. It's not a, it's not something that typically happens. So, but I think the point that you're making is that the recovery, the ability for the, the, the brain to have the eyes recover is what really gets hit in this um, post-concussion syndrome. <laughs> so that was one diagnostic test that we found. And, um, you know, I, I do lots of work with uh, Dr. Ken Kafrida, who's a great friend and colleague that we've been working together for 35 years. So that was one. And then he came up with a test uh, about 25 years ago where he rotated a drum, an optokinetic drum with stripes in patients' periphery and said, how bad does that make you feel? Which was pretty bad with these patients. Right. So uh, I took that test and I said, you know what? Let's quantify it. Let's make this a more standardized test in that it's still based on the patient's response and their interpretation to this. But we had this rotating drum in all four fields of their vision, peripheral, optokinetic, nystagmus. Typically, when we use that drum, as you know, we have the patient look at the stripes. In this case, we're having them look straight ahead and it's rotating in their periphery. Well, what is that? That's visual motion, right? Right. So we're using visual motion to provoke the symptoms. And we're asking them to kind of quantify it on a zero to 10 Likert scale basis. So what we found was that if we combined those two tests, the peripheral OKN and the distance fusional facility test, that our research showed we had a sensitivity and a specificity of 94% in differentiating these post-concussion from normal patients. I know that's a mouthful, so you know maybe if you want to ask questions that maybe I can help kind of, you know, get, go into some more detail or at least clarify that. But that was kind of really interesting and really 
helped us with making a more positive diagnosis as opposed to one just based on their symptoms per se. That, that's amazing because they're fairly they're very easy, non-expensive tests to run for the doctor. Uh, when was that published, the article that uh, documented so, your research? So the, the, the one and, and uh, you know one of the wonderful things that it's um, happened over the past you know 10, 12 years is that my residents, are involved with um, you know lots of this research, and they've been involved with pretty much all of this. But the the article that I'm referencing was published, I believe, in 2019 in the Vision Development and Rehabilitation Journal, and it looked at three tests. Actually, another test for specific photosensitivity that I'll talk about in a second, and this peripheral OKN and the distance fusional facility test. Those three tests, but it was found that the two the distance fusion and the peripheral OKN were the ones that were really critical in helping to determine the post-traumatic or the post-concussion traumatic brain injury from the normal patients. Well, that's fascinating. Fascinating, And for the non-optometrists listening, it sounds technical. They're very, they, the tests would take less than a, a couple minutes. And exactly. those tests would be in addition to, if you'll want to go over the entire battery of testing. Those are just two of, but they're very different from what almost any other eye doctor uh, would uh, evaluate you for. Yes, and so that's one of the things that I've been doing. I guess the pandemic, of course, got in the way of that, but um, when I lecture, and I'm gonna be lecturing again in, in, um, next week and the week after, a couple weeks later in COVD, but one of the things I make a point of is to let other doctors know about these tests because like you said, they're so simple and they only take a couple of minutes. And you know, we have lots of tests that we do, our whole optometric battery, but these are additional tests that can help us differentiate them. The one thing I will say is that especially with that peripheral um, OKN test, I usually save that till the end if I think the patient might, this might be very provocative because whether or not you want it to be, that might be the end of your examination anyway. That is for sure. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, we used to get a lot of referrals from neurologists, and she'd always ask her patients after they've seen us, did Dr. Hellerstein make you sick? <laughs> and, and she always expected a yes, and we're not proud of it. But but tapping into a sensitive system, just asking them to move on, their eyes can make some of these patients so sick that we have to really break up the evaluation over time. You know, another test that we used that's not, it wasn't our test, but again, it was with um, Dr. Kafrida and myself, is that uh, for many years, yeah, I don't know if it's been 100 years, but many, many years, there was a function that all optometry students learned about in physiological optics, and that is critical flicker fusion. You probably, you know, have like a, in the back of your mind, you think, oh, I thought I'd never have to hear about that again if you're an optometrist. Rang a little bell, right, go ahead. <laughs> but basically, if you can imagine, it's, it's hard to draw this mental image, but imagine a flickering light and it starts to flicker faster and faster until it looks like a solid light. So that's the point at which it starts to look like a solid light and not a flickering light is their point of critical flicker fusion. And conversely, when you have a solid light or looks like a solid light and you start to get it to the point where you see the flicker, 
That's the other direction, but it's, that's how we, we may actually devise an instrument that helps determine the CFF or this threshold level. And what was interesting about it is that the patients that we find that say, oh, that light, please turn that off. That fluorescent light's killing me. What we found is that they had a higher than average flicker free fusion rate. In other words, they saw flicker at a much higher rate than the average patient. Well, what does that mean? That means that they can subconsciously or subcortically see this flicker in lights that you or I wouldn't necessarily notice any, any problem with. And they may not even notice that it's flickering, but they'll notice that it's very uncomfortable. So this was helpful in terms of at least letting us diagnose them better. That's so interesting. And we could spend hours on the evaluation. I mean, you've talked yeah. about just three little tests, which are not commonly done. You know, of course, you're going to do all the eye health and and sure. near and far sighted and those kinds of things. But if you'll just spend a minute or two, especially talking about the the testing you'll have in addition for the photosensitivity and anything else on the visual motion sensitivity that's kind of outside of the routine comprehensive vision exam. So, uh, you know, one a couple of other things that we'll do is we're going to do a test where they're looking at a, a distance a visual acuity chart, Snellen chart, and we have them rotate their head very quickly. This is called the dynamic visual acuity test. And what we find is that if they have a vestibular problem, again, part of our job is to figure out how much is vestibular and how much is visual. But if they have a vestibular problem or what they call a VOR gain problem, then you might find that they have a, a, a degradation of their visual acuity, two lines or more. That's not a standard test, but that's one that we might do. And by the same token, we might have them do something called a vestibular ocular reflex test, where they turn their head back and forth quickly and look at a pen or a target in front of them. And then when they stop, we'll evaluate how bad does that make you feel as opposed to how bad did the peripheral OKN or the stripes in the periphery make you feel. So we try to differentiate how much of this is visual, how much is vestibular. And of course, like you said, eye health, visual fields, um, all the standard testing for how the eyes work together and focus together, those are all done too. Our patients oftentimes are, are here for more than two hours. Now we take lots of breaks in between and give them a break, let them get water, get a snack. But, you know, it, it's a long evaluation. Sometimes we have to break it up, of course. But, yeah, those are some of the things that we do in this testing. And I guess the other thing is, you know, I, don't, I, don't, I would be, I really want to get into what do we do about this? Because now you say, oh, well, we found this problem, but now what? So that'll probably be the next thing that I'd like to speak about. So, Barry, now what? <laughs> exactly. We don't. We only have about five minutes to go. But if you can really and, give and, some insights, yeah, into... I just want to give an overview. So, you know, one of the things that we found, both with the visual motion sensitivity and the specific photosensitivity, is that specific types of tints, not just a gray sunglass, although sometimes that can help, but these specific colors 
can provide tremendous relief. So typically, the kind of the spectrum is in the blue purplish range. And I have lots of theories, and there are lots of theories as to why that might be the case. We don't have time to talk about it, but you know that specifically that color can reduce symptoms in people who are very symptomatic. Also, for people who have either migraines or have headaches that are associated with the scrolling or screen use, the more the specific photosensitivity people, we find this color, this FL41, which is sort of a brownish, yellowish, orange color, is also very helpful in reducing symptoms. So those are two tints that seem to be very helpful. Another thing that we do that sounds sort of strange is we have these strips, these binasal strips that actually cover the inside portion of the lens of their glasses. And what this does, it reduces peripheral confusion from the opposite eye. So the right eye has this nasal strip and it prevents confusion from the left temporal field and vice versa, the left eye has the strip that reduces the confusion from the right visual field. And sometimes this provides tremendous relief for our visual motion sensitivity patients. But I'd say the most important thing overall is the neurooptometric rehabilitative therapy. And this is, you know, an extension of what we call vision therapy. But here, what we're trying to do, if you go back to what we said, one of the biggest factors is that the brain has lost the ability to properly filter. And what we're doing with the neurooptometric rehabilitative therapy is using a process called top-down processing, where we actually slowly restore the ability of the brain to filter peripheral motion, sounds, balance, walking, while they're doing visual tasks like eye movement, tracking, converging, diverging. So that's really critical to the brain's ability to sort of restore their ability to deal with all these different visual environments. So I think this NORT, this neurooptometric rehabilitative therapy is critical to a lot of these patients' recovery. And uh, this is just a very short, concise overview of the rehab. And we're going to have to have you on a second time to really go through this again uh, in more depth. But I think what you brought out is so critical about the filtering process because we don't see it just visually. Often these patients auditorily are overwhelmed with sound, tactily overwhelmed with touch or sensation. and, And so... Overstimulation uh, in all our sense, sensory systems is just hallmark of these patients that are post-concussive that we see. And vision, of course, we believe being the dominant sense for operating and learning uh, is often not very well evaluated in medical systems. And it's uh, your work and Dr. Ken Kafrida's work and so many others in this field that has just made such a tremendous difference in rehabilitation. We only have, uh, you know, like another minute left. And Barry, I want to make sure people know how they can reach you and get more information uh, so that they can get help uh, if they don't happen to live in New Jersey where you're at. No, of course. Uh, I'm more than happy to try to help anybody who contacts me uh, directly. Of course, uh, my email is drt, Dr. T, no uh, period. DRT at iCareProfessionals with an S.com. 
So I'm more than happy. But another way that probably is easier for patients to try to find somebody who can help them is through the COVD website, COVD.org. And they have a provider list. And they often, those doctors who have this certification, this fellowship, um, like you and I do, have a lot of uh, experience in treating these type of conditions. And another organization, Neurooptometric Rehabilitative uh, Association, is another organization where you can find that sort of help and the doctors that can help you. Well, Barry, I thank you so much. We are out of time. We will have you back for more discussion on rehab. And thanks so much for who you are and what you've done in this world. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure. Thank you for joining us today on Vision Beyond Sight. Join Dr. Lynn Hellerstein each week to help you find clarity in your functional vision and expand the power of your seeing brain to gain courage, confidence, and success in your life. Remember, your vision does not define you. You define your vision. For more information and find additional podcasts, visit lynnhellerstein.com. See you next time on Vision Beyond Sight.